This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Gail Gross's journey with grief began in April of 1990 when she received the heartbreaking phone call in the middle of the night that changed her life irrevocably. Dawn, her 24-year-old daughter, had been discovered dead in her apartment in Los Angeles. She had died unexpectedly in her sleep from an undetected heart condition. That tragedy catapulted Gail into a deep inversion process that launched an intimate exploration of bereavement, which she says is a unique and debilitating form of grief. In the wake of death, shock, devastation, and utter distraction, she desperately tried to make sense of and even comprehend the loss, not only of her daughter, but also of her perceived past, present, and future. As part of her personal coping process, she gained advanced degrees in education and psychology and ultimately discovered that if you allow yourself to have your grief rather than resist it, Acceptance, personal reconstruction, and restoration are possible. Your life, though irrevocably changed, can become even more vital than before if you meet death and say yes to life. We'll be speaking with Dr. Gail Gross when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. Peekaboo, peekaboo, smile. Smile, buddy. Come on, smile. Oh, honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. <sighs> yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. You know how boys are. Or maybe he's teething. Oh, poor baby, I think his gums hurt. Maybe he's just tired. Or maybe his tummy hurts. He didn't eat that much. Maybe he's not ticklish. You think maybe he's scared of the dog? Maybe he'll outgrow it. Maybe it's a phase. Maybe he just doesn't like smiling. Maybe he has autism, and we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at autismspeaks.org signs, or see a doctor today for an autism screening. The sooner it's diagnosed, the better. And it can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Gail Gross, who's the author of The Only Way Out is Through, A 10-Step Journey from Grief, Grief to Wholeness. Graves, uh, Gail, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Armin. So let's start at the beginning. And, I mean, this will sound like a horribly basic question and maybe even a silly question to some people, but how do you define grief? Well, you know, grief is the experience that we all go through when we're approaching a transition. It's the feeling of loss and sadness, and it is a tension that builds up within us until we move into a new new stage. And everyone feels grief when they transition into anything. So when you have a, a loss of a job or going to a new job or selling a house or 
buying a new house or breaking up with a mate, finding a new mate, divorce, death, loss of a, a child or fight with a friend, whatever the change is, grief signals that change, that we are going to let go of something and move towards something else. Except that sadness is so paralyzing that many people never can move forward and just stay, not just where they are, but go back to an earlier stage of development where they feel a comfort zone. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I was not expecting you to say that because <laughs> I, I, I had never really thought about grief being associated with every transition. Every transition, all day long, Armin, you go through little deaths. You, someone says something nice to you, and you feel happy. Someone says something uncomfortable or not nice to you, and you feel sad. And the feeling in between is grief that space in between that and and truthfully if we won't when we're when we're moving towards letting go of something and we're afraid to let go say you're in a bad relationship and you don't want to let it go because what's familiar is better than what is out there perhaps that you don't know and the fear of the unknown keeps you in the bad relationship that's when the grief becomes intense so that it's trying to move you forward, mm-hmm. even though you don't want to move yourself. But it sounds like the vast majority of experiences with grief that we have are almost unnoticed. Yes, in, in a sense. We describe it as sadness. We say we're out of sorts. We feel discombobulated. We um, can't get a grip on things. We need to be by ourselves. We withdraw. We call it depression many times. Mm-hmm. And in in fact, we misuse the word depression quite a bit. I had a friend who had clinical depression, and he said to me, clinical depression is like being in a cave with a teaspoon, and you're using that teaspoon to carve your way out of a cave. And I'll never forget that description. But sadness, deep sadness, is really a part of the process of growth. Just like a caterpillar goes into a cocoon and comes out as something completely different, a butterfly. And that is really what we do. We transform. Jung called it the transcendent function. He said we percolate, if you will, in our own psyche. And then... Something new is born from that, and that something new is our transformation. Your particular journey, and this, this you had been dealing with these issues before, obviously, as, as we all have, but you had a, a particularly jarring uh, experience that set you on the road to writing this book. Uh, tell us about that from, from 1990. Yes. Our daughter died, our daughter Dawn, died from cardiomyopathy with fibrosis, a heart virus. And we were on a trip and got that proverbial call in the middle of the night. And in that second, from one second of feeling fine to the phone call, our entire life changed. And we were psychologically, my husband and I, completely deconstructed, very vulnerable and frightened. 
and you you shift almost immediately when such a trauma uh, occurs to an earlier stage, even as young as seven, when you feel not just vulnerable but incapacitated, fearful, feeling that you're hopeless and helpless. And that type of tragedy really can paralyze you to never move forward in your life. And so being a psychologist, not at that time, but being a psychologist now, I have formatted a process that I used in my own journey. I would never have discussed my own journey in such a personal way if I hadn't been on a particular television show and I was asked to comment on children and death and terrorism. And I received a terrible email from a mother who had lost a child and she excoriated me. What did I know about the loss of a child? How completely devastating that was. And I actually understood where she was coming from because the the loss of a child, the death of someone you love, a, a mate, a child, is so deconstructing that if someone hasn't been there, they really can't meet you at that edge, no matter how compassionate, no matter how empathetic, which is why groups like Compassionate Friends are so successful, because they are other people like you who have been there, who have walked this journey, and they can reach their hand out to you, and you, therefore, can take it. And that's what made me write my own story, not just my own process, because I realized that no one would see it as authentic unless I explained that right. I had walked that walk myself. Yeah, I think you talk about in, in somewhere in the book, I can't remember exactly where it was, that, that uh, books on grief tend to be either either memoirs or science, and they, they tend to be somewhat detached right. in a lot of ways, which yeah. yours, yours combines memoir and science and is definitely not detached. Yeah, I, in fact, I asked my son to write uh, a, a chapter for me on his experience because I think what's lacking in so many, in so many books such as this, and and in our own experience as parents, when a child dies, is the recognition that siblings suffer terribly. But because they've never seen their parents fragile before, they suppress their suffering. And they do things to prop up their parents rather than deal with their own feelings. And the danger of that is that they will stay there and not be able to get on with their life. Stay in that sadness. Stay in that disconnect. Mm -hmm. And that what we would simply call depression, but is really grief. And so I asked my son to talk about his experience so that it, it would bring to the surface that a sibling feels in his own way the same loss. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it's in many ways it's the same, but it's also probably quite different. Well, it's different in that the sibling relationship is different. And the, many times there is lack of resolution It's the last time you saw each other or the things you didn't say or the things you wished you had. And so there's this relationship that has stopped that in a sense is is so close because siblings 
actually, especially if they are close, as my children were, really are very, very much together, like a little team. They expect their parents to die one day, and they expect that they will go on with the family. And not only that, but most people don't really think about this, but biologically, siblings are closer than parent and child. Because siblings are actually carrying mother's genes and father's genes. Exactly. So together, they are biologically closer, which is why if a child needs anything um, in the healthcare world from a, um, a donor, the best donor is the SIB. Right, right. Um, talking with Gail Gross, who is the author of The Only Way Out is Through, A 10-Step Journey from Grief to Wholeness. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking with Gail. This heavyweight bout is about to begin. The challenger wears white trunks with a blue stripe, and the champ is wearing, uh, looks like an examination gown from the doctor's office. And from the back, we can... Ooh, that's not pretty. Champ, what's with the crazy getup? I've got to take care of my family. Yeah, so? Well, when you love your family, you got to go in and get those important medical screenings. A lot of potentially deadly diseases can be treated if you catch them in time. So you wear the examination gown because... Because I'm a real man. Real men take care of their families and get those tests. Real men wear gowns. Okay, champ. Good luck. Here we go. The champ's not wasting any time. It's over. This fight is over. Champ, you barely broke a sweat. Any words for your fans out there? Remember, go to ahrq.gov for a list of the tests they need to get and when to get them. What was that web address again? ahrq.gov. And remember, real men wear gowns. Go to ahrq.gov. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AHRQ, and the Ad Council. All right, class. Let's hear what everyone did this weekend. Jill? Well, I raised my older sister to a big oak tree. It was at least a hundred years old. My mom said I must have set a record or something. And then we went down by a stream and perched up on this huge rock and saw all these little minnows swimming around way below us. And then I rescued my little brother from an evil slug king who was guarding him at the bush fortress. And my sister and I brought him back to our super twig fort for safety. And then we all laid out and told stories until it got dark. And the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? Yeah. We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Anyone want to come this weekend? Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week and find the fun, adventurous you. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Dr. Gail Gross, who's the author of The Only Way Out is Through, A 10-Step Journey from Grief to Wholeness. I want you to to start us, we're not going to be able to get through all 10 of the steps, and I don't think we, we need to. But how did you begin to get from this deconstructed stot, state that you, you talked about, this yeah. com- complete devastation and, and horror, to begin to find your way back? Well, you know, I started with the idea of courage and choice. You know, Winston Churchill's great line, if you're going through, through hell, keep going. And unless you move forward, you're frozen where you are. And you move back often, often to old patterns and old ways of behaving because there's a comfort zone there. And you really don't feel safe in this new place that, 
that your psyche has thrown you. And at some point, every parent has to decide to live because the loss of a child is so devastating. You just don't think you can go on. And so it's a conscious choice to go on. And if you're going to go on, you have to decide how to do it, how to make the most of your life. And that is very much a Jungian concept. You know, Carl Jung was the student of Freud, and he believed very much in inner work, in accessing your unconscious, and, and stated quite clearly that the unconscious was really who we are. It's the most of who we are, and that we think the ego is who we are, but actually it's the function of us. The unconscious creates the ego, and then we get out of bed, we go to work, we get married, we have children or not, we, we live our lives in, in a healthy or not function. But the unconscious is actually organizing our environment. That's the most of who we are. And it's always trying to have a conversation with us. And the only way it reaches us is through symbol and archetype. And that's through dreams or meditation or inner work, journaling, walking, mm-hmm. being alone. Only by quieting yourself can you hear your inner voice. And only by listening to your inner voice can you find your true vocation. But how so, can you even begin to hear an inner voice when you're being bombarded with the, the noise and the, the shock of what's happened? Yes, when you're devastated, completely devastated. It's easy, actually, to quiet yourself because you're leaking energy. It takes so much energy to, to grieve that you recognize you're very, very tired a lot of the time. That's part of the, the sadness, and, and it, it's very much a part of depression. And these biological things set in at the moment of, of trauma to save your life, your psychological life. Because by leaking energy, you slow down. And your psyche is slowing you down so that you don't die from shock. In, in a sense, and in, in fact, some parents do die from shock. And so it, it sort of works the way voodoo works or things mm-hmm. like that, where something frightens you and you just stop living. So, you know, your psyche wants you to live. And it slows you down. And you get tired, and the key is to allow yourself to have your grief. I almost called this book, People Who Grieve Can Live Again. Yeah. And, and the key is to let yourself grieve, to let it wash over you, to go out if you want, to stay in if you want, to cry if you want, to laugh if you want, not to feel guilty. Most parents feel guilty because the primary role of a parent is to save their child. You know, every parent says, I throw myself in front of a car or a train for my child. And in most cases, they would. At the end of the day, however, we don't have a crystal ball. Nobody knows how things are going to work out. If we did, we'd all do the right things all the time. But because we don't, we do the best we can with either our genetic or, or environmental background and patterns or with the choices we make that are conscious, always, you know, doing the best we can with the information. Mm-hmm. So you were talking about courage and choice and, and moving, con- continuing to move through. So okay. after you've gotten to the point where you can hear the voice right. or your, your own so inner, the, your inner voice, what, what do you do then? 
Well, the, the courage and choice is the decision to live. And then the hearing your own voice is the inner work. So that, you know, in a psychological mode, what model, what actually is going on is you've been cast out of this safe cocoon that you live in, or I would call it a persona, when you hear of the trauma of death. And now you're cast into this place with no familiar scaffolding or structures. In psychology, we call it the neutral zone. I call it the valley of despair. Now here is where all of your disowned material, your shadow material lives. It's also where all the inner work can happen, the journaling, the dream journal, the dream paying attention to your dreams, because that is the language of your unconscious, which is trying to have a conversation with you. Meditating, prayer, contemplation, it is in this quiet place that you can access your own unconscious. And now, if you do inner work in this place by yourself, you will be moved forward into a larger persona automatically, not at first, not right away. At first, you're in shock, and you're in shock for about a year. And then you're required to be real, to recognize, not to be, to recognize death, not in the model of magical thinking, hoping your child will turn up in your kitchen, but or your mate or whatever, but knowing that this person that you love is dead, and you can go on. And not only can you go on, but you can go on more vitally than you were before. Because you know something that most people don't know. You know how fragile life is. Mm -hmm. And all of the energy that you use to suppress your feelings in this valley of despair is released because you're doing this inner work. And then it's returned to you because all the fertility for the next stage of your life is in the disowned material, the suppressed material, what Jung would call the shadow material. Now, what and so about, when you take that Gail, back, your libido returns. Gail, what, what about people, though, who don't have any interest in doing the inner work? They just want to move on. Can you do have, that? No. Um, people do move on, but they don't move on in, in a way that serves them. Because a lot of your vitality your libido, your energy for life is used up, that creative energy, in suppressing or holding down your feelings. So people who suppress their feelings and repress their feelings and just move on and don't want to do, don't want to talk. I know many families never want to talk about their loss. They never want to uh, mention it again. They don't want to think about it, but it's there but it's there without finding a home. So it's, it's pushed inside, and it does a lot of damage inside, free-floating anxiety, depression. But if we confront it by doing this inner work, we can find a place for it to live inside. We integrate it back consciously. And when we do that, we no longer project it out onto our mates, our other children, our friends, but if we just move forward without being conscious, we'll move forward without that vitality. And by moving forward in that way, we move forward backwards. We become more childish. We go back to the mm. old patterns that are familiar to us. And we often lose our relationships 
because especially husbands and wives, they, men and women are quite different. Our psyches are different. Our brains are different. Together we make a whole, but we look at things differently. A woman takes her grief home. She's living it 24-7. A man goes to the office, he compartmentalizes, and that's natural to both. So it's very difficult to grieve with your mate. Yeah. The, the styles are different, and as a result, 80% of all couples that lose a child, for example, also lose each other. So those that have lost so much already lose the person they loved. Yeah. But if they become conscious, they can consciously do things to reestablish the vitality and love of their relationship. Gail Gross is the author of The Only Way Out is Through a Ten-Step Journey from Grief to Wholeness. Thank you so much. Thank you, Arvin. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six... I had one thing on my mind. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball every chance I could. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn the signs of a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, Time to call 911. Because the sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in their recovery. I'm Paul George. Protect the ones you love. Spot a stroke F-A-S-T. Fast. Life is why. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott. And it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my daughter is almost two, and being a dad has been the greatest experience of my life. But lately, I look at my child and feel absolutely nothing. What is wrong with me, and what can I do to get my mojo back? Over the course of the 20-plus years I've been writing about parenting, there have been only a few things that I'm not sure I want my kids to see or hear, and this may be one of them. In this column and my books and radio shows and other work, I often talk about the joys and anxieties and fears and intense feelings of love that are all part of being a father. Like most men, your experience, despite the ups and downs, has been overwhelmingly positive, and you wouldn't trade it for anything. In fact, being a dad has become such an integral part of your life that you probably can't imagine not being one, right? But then came that day, completely out of the blue, when you look at your child and realize that the intense love you felt just the day before had been replaced by a numb, hollow feeling, and the delight you took in raising her and being part of her life had been supplanted by complete and utter ambivalence. You're overburdened, underappreciated, and you can hardly remember the last time you had a conversation with someone who knows more than 40 words. And now you feel like chucking this whole dad thing and starting a new life somewhere else, as far away from your kids as you can. Does that sound about right? Well, fortunately, those feelings of ambivalence usually last only a few minutes or a few hours. Sometimes, though, they go on for days or even weeks. But no matter how long they last, one thing is pretty much guaranteed. The instant after the ambivalence starts, you'll get hit by feelings of guilt. For, as you put it, having lost your mojo in the first place. And those guilty feelings will stick around long after the ambivalence is gone. After all, goes the internal monologue, if I'm not a completely committed father 100% of the time, I must not be cut out for the job at all. 
Most mothers are quite familiar with this ambivalence slash guilt pattern, but because they're generally more willing to discuss their worries and concerns with other mothers, they learn rather quickly that it comes with the territory. Sure, like you, they feel bad about it, or maybe even a little scared, but at least they know they're not alone. Men, on the other hand, don't learn this lesson. If we have a few other fathers with whom we can talk things over, we're incredibly lucky, but it's still pretty unlikely that we'll actually talk to them about this. It's already hard enough to ask for advice about diaper changing, discipline, or nutrition, but having ambivalent feelings seems like a serious weakness, perhaps even a character flaw, or at least it sure feels like one. And we're certainly not going to expose any weaknesses or character flaws to another man who might just laugh anyway, right? Hopefully, just hearing this has been enough to convince you, at least a little, that your changing feelings toward your children are completely normal. But if you're still worried or you need more reassurance, force yourself to spend a few minutes talking to someone about what you're feeling. A close friend, your clergyman, your therapist, or even partner, although it'll be hard to talk to her, but she will know exactly what you're talking about. And remember this, you're going to have these feelings dozens of times over the course of your fatherhood. So you'd better get used to dealing with them now. If you've got a comment or a question or a suggestion for us here at Positive Parenting, please send us an email through our website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. Until then, I'm Armin Brott. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.